The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is David Willig. David is a, a an attorney. He's a, an agent, a sports agent, and we're going to be talking about uh, the New England Patriots star tight end Aaron Hernandez, who was charged with first-degree murder, along with five other gun-related offenses, uh, offenses um, in connection with the death of Odair, whose body was found about a mile from Hernandez's home last Monday. Uh, David, welcome to the show. Good morning, Catherine. Thank you for having me on. It's great to be with so- you. Yeah, so you are a sports agent and a sports attorney as well? That's correct. Um, right. I'm an, an international sports attorney, an international sports agent. Um, as an attorney, I've worked 25 years around the world. I speak several different languages, and I'm actually qualified as a, as a lawyer in Europe as well. And so as an agent, what I do uh, mostly is to place uh, American athletes in, in professional sports overseas. Right. So, what's the interest of? We all have an interest, obviously, or uh, in Aaron Hernandez, or your particular interest. Obviously, I have an interest both as an agent and as an attorney for the legal aspects, and I think that the public at large has a great deal of interest because it's a case that involves uh, allegations of premeditated murder, which is about as high as you can go on the uh, the crime meter. All right, so let's discuss the case because specifically in terms of the legal process for Hernandez right now. Well, the legal process for Hernandez as it stands right now, he's got a long uh, road ahead of him. As I understand it, I don't even think he's been formally arraigned yet. He's been arrested. He's been denied bail twice, which means he's going to be uh, spending the time for preparing for trial in jail, in detention. He only gets out for an hour a day, um, and at some point uh, there's going to be a trial, but that's not going to probably take place for another year or two years or possibly longer. So he has uh, quite a bit ahead of him at this point, just in this case alone. Yeah, how, how involved are you in the case? I mean, this specifically in his case, are you are you intimately involved in this case in any way, no. or just yes no, or no? I'm not intimately involved. I'm not. Uh, working with the Aaron Hernandez team or anybody else involved with the case. I'm just uh, observing, like many people, um, perhaps with uh, a little bit of a different perspective on it as, again, both an agent and an attorney. Okay, let's uh, talk about, yeah. mm -hmm. As an agent and as an attorney, you said you have a little bit of a different perspective on the case. So what is is your perspective that's different, let's say, than, I guess, the, what, Hernandez attorneys or the general public? I'm really about the general public. Hernandez attorneys obviously have 
some inside knowledge of what's going on that I don't have, but I'm talking about in terms of the general public, just as the general public has their reactions to the Zimmerman verdict. Uh, some may have watched the trial, many probably did not. Um, but uh, it's also not just a matter of watching the trial, but understanding what happens in the trial as well. So that's why I say I have a little bit of a different perspective, because perhaps uh, more than the general population, I have a, a better understanding of what's going on with Hernandez, both in terms of the criminal case pending against him and the others that are being investigated against him, as well as the um, machinations with uh, his contracts and uh, all of the uh, goings-on with the NFL from the agent perspective. Okay, let's talk, uh, let's talk about those issues, the criminal case, and sort of, you know, we are, the, uh, as the general public or lay people, what do we need to know? May clarify it for us in terms of the criminal case and, and uh, you, know, you know, what's the procedure for him, for Hernandez? Well, we're pretty early on in the case. As you mentioned uh, in the um, intro, the first news was uh, a dead body was found a mile from Hernandez's house. If somebody told me, hey, David, uh, a dead body was found a mile from your house, I would, wondering, I would wonder why anybody's even asking me about it at all. But evidently they must have known that Hernandez had some connection. So it was a bit of a slow bleed at the beginning of what, what we've learned, but now we've learned a lot more. Uh, we know that, for example, in the uh, bail hearings, uh, the Hernandez defense team was quoted in the press as saying, well, it's a circumstantial case, but it's a weak one. And, of course, the judge who denied him bail was quoted as in the same press as saying, well, it's a circumstantial case, but a strong one. It is a circumstantial case, and it's going to take a trial eventually to prove his guilt. As I mentioned, that process is some time away. In the meantime, uh, there may be some uh, attack on search warrants that uh, his defense attorneys might launch in the pretrial proceedings. Certainly, they're going to want to take statements from witnesses. Looks like there are two accomplices who were called in by, uh, apparently, allegedly called in by Hernandez from neighboring states. Uh, one was arrested down here in Florida. Uh, originally, they said he was an accessory after the fact, which means he may have disposed of something afterward. But uh, it's likely that the prosecution team up in Massachusetts will try to get those accomplices to flip on Aaron Hernandez and testify against him. So he needs to be prepared for that as well. So, David, you're saying that just going back from the, the beginning, um, you know, where we just uh, of this, uh, what you're just talking about, you know, you say somebody found a body, you know, near your house, and suddenly you're under suspicion and and uh, potentially under arrest. Why did that happen? Well, how, can you speculate on that? Because you said obviously there's a lot more to it uh, than we know about. But what do you think that we don't know? Why did they go after him initially or immediately? Well, what I, what I was really saying was that the I think the law enforcement officials knew a little bit more, even when it was first said uh, there was a dead body found a mile away. A mile away is not that close by, actually. It's not really near. But um, they knew that there was a connection between the victim and Aaron Hernandez. They were connected by personal relations. I don't remember exactly how it went, I think. Odin Lloyd, the victim's girlfriend, was the sister of, uh, I think, maybe the woman that Hernandez was, was living with. I'm not, not really sure, again, as I say, what the connection was, but they knew each other. And um, there was some, uh, some text messages evidently exchanged that night so that people who knew Odin Lloyd knew where he was at 2.30 in the morning, uh, the morning that uh, evidently he was killed. 
So I think that they put that all together well before, and uh, when they found that body a mile away from his home, uh, I think they quickly put at least two and two together to get at least three and a half, enough to to think that uh, it was was worth looking into it further and ultimately uh, having Hernandez arrested. So, you know, all, I'm always curious, I mean, what's your read on, I mean, these sports figures who, um, and there have been several of them, I guess, now, even over the past year, who, you know, who are involved in murder cases, the one in in, uh, in South Africa, um, you know, you the public looks at these guys as, you know, they have, the, you know, they have money, they have fame, they have, uh, uh, you know, everything that most people would like to have, and yet they get themselves involved in this, well, this is a, if he did it, allegedly horrendous crime. Um, that's my question. Where do you think well, that, yeah, yeah. Well, one of the things athletes have that we all have are foibles and weaknesses, and we see that uh, when, when a case like this comes out or the Oscar Pistorius case in South Africa. So obviously it can transcend national borders as well. But it may be um, a little bit of an over, overblown problem when, <clears throat> for example, I'm sure you saw the reports uh, in the last few weeks when they were saying that um, since the Super Bowl in February, 30 NFL players have been arrested. If you transpose those statistics over statistics for the population, the general population as a whole, it's actually lower than the rate of, of arrest for the general population as a whole, even when you consider the uh, the highly suspect segment, if you will, uh, males aged 18 to 29, which is where, where most football players fall. Um, they're actually lower than the population as a whole. So I think maybe a little bit of an overgrown, overblown problem uh, mostly because um, athletes tend to be uh, celebrities at some level. They might be superstars or they might just be stars, but they're celebrities always. And so uh, when something happens to them, that makes news. And uh, I don't really blame the media necessarily. I think the media is just responding to what people are interested in reading about. Yeah. So it has to do with their celebrity status. In other words, uh, there aren't more athletes are getting themselves into trouble or murder cases, or uh, but we just hear about it because the media plays on it because they are celebrities and we do want to know. <laughs> um, That's part of it, Catherine. But certainly when you have a case like Aaron Hernandez where the allegations are of premeditated murder, that's not only killing a human being, but, but planning it, thinking about it, and going ahead and doing it. Uh, the Oscar Pistorius case in South Africa has its own uh, interesting aspects. Uh, it was this beautiful model. Um, it was this crazy situation where he, he claims that he thought it was a burglar in the house, shoots bullets through the bathroom door, and ends up killing his, his beloved girlfriend and fiance. So I think that, that in addition to the celebrity, uh, makes it an interesting story that the, the media likes to latch on to. Do you think it has much to do with the, I mean, we're talking about men. Do we have any cases, you know, similar cases, celebrity cases of, of women in sports, international, you're an international sports agent where the same kind of thing happens? Or do you think this is the, you know, the a testosterone thing going on with these guys or what? Well, uh, I'm not sure if it's quite the same, but uh, I think there's a couple of doping cases out of Jamaica now, including women runners. Uh, remember Tanya Harding, who was involved in this crazy attack on, um, I forget the skater's name, um, it's a shame, I guess, that the uh, the perpetrator ends up more famous than the victim, but unfortunately, well, that's the way it went. Tanya Harding uh, plotted a, uh, uh, an attack on one of her skating rivals. So, um, you know, women have foibles and weaknesses as well, and sometimes that comes out and shows with uh, women athletes as well.
Yeah, it's, it does. But now you're Tanya Harding. That was so many. That was quite a few years ago, wasn't it? I don't know how many. It was a while ago. It was the one that came freshest to mind when you mentioned do women get involved in yeah. these kinds of things. And that, yes, they do. They do, yeah. But I was trying to think of some that are more recent cases, like we seem to hear more about the men. I don't know. Just, but, um, well, how about, how about the, um, uh, the, the, the baseball wife pulling a gun on her husband? Uh, that was just a couple of weeks ago. I don't know if you heard about that. I can't remember the name of the lady. She's on a, a, a reality show called Baseball Wives. And she was arrested for aggravated assault for having uh, brandished a weapon to her husband or boyfriend, whatever he is. It was just yeah. in the news a couple of weeks ago. That's David. She was the wife. She wasn't the baseball player. I'm kind of talking uh, about this. No, no, she was the wife, but she's, she's a woman. She's not a woman athlete, but she's a woman doing something something crazy involving athletes. But you're saying women athletes? I'm sure that they do. I, I, I could research it. Um... I haven't heard of any of any lately. That's why I mentioned Tanya Harding comes to mind. But Tanya Harding was a pretty pretty crazy case as well. I mean, that was a vicious case. That's true. And you do remember Tanya Harding. You don't rem- can't, we can't remember who the victim was. Nancy Kerrigan, I think, was her name. Yes, Nancy Kerrigan. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. So, well, let's get back to Aaron Hernandez. Okay. Sure. So, where are we right now? Um, what, what's going to happen going forward? Well, they're going to prepare a trial. The um, Prosecution is going to be building its case based on evidence that they may continue to be uh, investigating. And uh, as I mentioned, the defense team is going to want to know what evidence is going to be presented at that trial. So they're going to want to take statements and depositions and uh, ask the, the state for what evidence that they have, what exculpatory evidence they might have. And all that will build toward a trial that, as I mentioned, is probably not going to occur for another year, two years, or possibly more. So what are the options for Hernandez? What do you see as the options? Well, one option that I considered earlier on in the case when the prosecution uh, referred to Hernandez as the orchestrator of this killing suggested that he may not have been the trigger man, which thereafter suggested, well, maybe he has a possibility of him, Hernandez, flipping on one of his accomplices and saying, well, I'll testify against uh, the actual shooter uh, in exchange for a more lenient sentence. Uh, I don't believe the death penalty is on the table in Massachusetts, but uh, they might uh, plead him down to an accessory to murder and maybe get a lesser sentence. I consider that possibility. But I believe now one of the um, uh, one of the so-called accomplices, alleged accomplices, it looks like they're they're probably going to be flipping on Aaron Hernandez and identifying him as being the ringleader and mastermind of this. Uh, really, it's a, it's a plot to kill somebody. That's what premeditated murder is. It's something that, that was planned and, and carried out. So, David, I assume that whatever happens in the case, his career is over, no matter what the verdict is. And you know, in in a, mur- in a murder trial, he uh, the Pro Football Hall of Fame, what, has distanced itself from this... Uh, him. They took his photo away, a picture uh, from the display case. When was that? Last week. So what are the implications of that? He's going to be gone from the NFL? Well, apparently they're trying to to wipe all trace of Aaron Hernandez. Um, And just to be clear, the the photo in the Hall of Fame was not a portrait of Aaron Hernandez as a Hall of Fame member. It was just uh, kind of a, a gleeful picture, if you will of Aaron Hernandez taking some celebratory long steps on the field after, obviously, a successful play. And perhaps they felt it was not in good taste to have uh, 
picture of Aaron Hernandez smiling and happy in the face of all these allegations. Perhaps people complained at the Hall of Fame, but that's what they've done. As to whether his career is over, it's not necessarily clear. He might still be acquitted. I'm not sure if that's in the cards, but let's say he is acquitted. Will he be able to get back to football? He's going to have some hurdles, but it wouldn't be the first time a football player came back. Michael Vick comes to mind. Uh, But in Hernandez's case right now, he's in pretrial detention. He's locked up about 23 hours a day, from what I understand, which means he gets an hour out. Uh, He's not going to be able to stay in football shape under those conditions. So he's going to need to be able to stay in shape and, and, and or get in shape if he is acquitted to make a, a renewed football career a viable option for him. I wouldn't rule it out, but I would say it's it's a, a, a pretty likely. high hurdle for him. Not yeah, likely. It's a pretty high hurdle for him to, to get over all that he's facing right now. Yeah. I mean, you, as you say, I mean, physically he's not going to be in shape. That's one thing. But even... Second, I mean, in terms of the public and how they view him and his own mental status, I, I have, I, you know, in your experience, I mean, it just amazes me. And maybe this is coming from a social work perspective, how somebody who can be so high up and, and you know, and then fall so far and be in a, you know, a two by four cell and be able to main, maintain himself psychologically, emotionally, besides physically. You know, it's a big change for him. I did read some reports that said that he had been adjusting fairly well to uh, jail detention. Um, but uh, you're right, over the long term, it might have a different effect. But you're also right in saying that uh, even if he is acquitted and gets released and tries to go back to football, he's going to face some, some criticism and face some uh, some outcry. Um, and indeed, uh, the, the, um, the specter of this case can, can continue to follow him. Uh, we saw in the case of O.J. Simpson, he was acquitted of murder, but then he was sued civilly and was ordered to pay a lot of money for those same killings. So that that could happen to Aaron Hernandez as well. And so the 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 criminal case that we're talking about is really just the beginning, not the end for Aaron Hernandez. He's got a lot more long way to go, and uh, a lot of the story is yet to be written. Because if you can't go back again, you know, it's not like even as you say, and I think O.J. Simpson is probably a good example. I mean, once you've gone through it, it's a process, it's a, a change, and, and you, you, you're, it's the before and after. You're completely changed. To, so to go back to being what he was, to me, it seems like an impossible task because, you know, you have to be affected by this, you know, by what obviously all of this, the trial and being incarcerated and the reaction of the public, and then what, what about family and their reaction? Uh, all of that is, uh, would seem to me would make it, impossible for him to go back and being the hero that he was for the football. He'll never be the hero that he was, uh, if indeed he was a hero. Uh, He was a bit of a controversial player most of his career, both in college and and the pros. But uh, I I think you're right. It's going to be a very tough road for him. But I, I, I I respect the resiliency of human beings, and I think that that's something he may be able to overcome. As I say, it's it's a long shot. He's got a, a lot a lot to surmount. But why uh, do you think that we? I want to. Why do you think that we're so willing as the the general public to forgive our heroes or our celebrities or our sports celebrities, but we aren't so willing to forgive each other when the same crimes are committed? Very difficult for someone who's committed murder. Uh, uh, gets out of who served his time and gets out of jail. We aren't so forgiving in in terms of allowing this person to come back into the 
in, into society? Well, obviously, the influence of uh, celebrated people has an impact on a great part of the public. Um, we know that um, throughout uh, commercial history, endorsements have been an important thing. Even hundreds of years ago, for example, in England, when you could say it was the um, uh, couturier to, to his majesty, the king of England, that made a, a tailor uh, a celebrity in, in his time. And so we see now that uh, celebrity endorsement is, is still a huge thing, and people want to have celebrity endorsements because they sell products. I think that's the same kind of psychology attaches to people when they're willing to overlook something horrible even that a celebrated person might have done, whereas, as you say, in our own lives, we might not be as willing to accept and forgive. So is it all about the money? This person can do a lot for us. You know, you talk about endorsements making money for themselves as well as for a lot of other people, and that that's uh, that definitely is comes into play in our forgiveness. Well, I don't think that's part of the forgiveness. That's part of the commercial tactic, if you will, of having the endorser. But because people who hire athletes to endorse their products know that uh, large numbers of people will go and buy something because a, a celebrity says they use it or they buy it. So really, I was talking about the the public at large. I don't think it's the money that makes the public at large more forgiving for celebrities. I think it's the fame of the celebrity that sort of engenders good feelings within the public so that they're willing to overlook. And a lot of times, I'm sure you've seen it as a social worker, people uh, who follow the lives of celebrities might feel like they know that celebrity, even though they don't. Yeah, we like to identify with the celebrities, but at the same time, there's a certain kind of a... uh, uh, schadenfreude, I guess you would call it, when celebrities uh, are exposed and are, uh, when something like this happens, not necessarily a, a murder case, but we kind of, you know, when they when when they fall, they fall hard, and there's some, cause I don't want to use the word glee, but also the public kind of revels in that at the same time, because it's, you know, oh, well, they're, they're not as great as they think they are. Uh, there's also something, I, I think that that's also part of it. It would seem to be, um, but I think that even more broadly, um, people people rubberneck over car accidents, train wrecks attract attention, and when a celebrity uh, gets into the downward spiral of, of weakness and, and, and perhaps even criminal activity, I'm not sure if it's necessarily a schadenfreude. Certainly for some people it might be where they say, well... That player, he's so dumb, or she's so dumb, he had it so easy, and look, he threw it all away. Um, But I think that um, when we see a a car accident involving people we don't know, a lot of people still slow down and look. So I think it's just a magnification of that same aspect, and it's kind of like watching a train wreck, as it's often uh, described when we're talking about celebrities and uh, and their descent into darkness. David, how do you think this, or you know, what what is happening to Hernandez? Uh, how is this whole situation going to change other football players' actions, or is it? Uh, Catherine, I really don't think it's going to change any football players' actions. Again, uh, football players, uh, although it appears from the news reports that you hear because they're celebrities that they get in trouble more often than regular people, but in fact, they get in trouble less often than regular people. I'm not sure that there really is any change necessary. Now, if players are 
plotting uh, to commit murder and things like that. They might adjust their tactics as a result of what happened with uh, Aaron Hernandez, but I don't think that the average football player is thinking about those things. Do you know anything about his family? Uh, you know, his immediate family, extended family, their relation to them, or what's happening in terms of him and his family now? You know, the little bit that I've read in the media about his family, one thing I believe involved an uncle who had a house up in, I'm not sure if it's Rhode Island, it wasn't in, maybe in Massachusetts, but um, the house was an address that uh, was actually linked to one of the accomplices, and I understand that one of the vehicles that law enforcement was looking for may have belonged to the uncle. So I'm not sure if looking into the family connections is going to uh, produce a, a better or a worse result for Aaron Hernandez. So that's all we know is about the uncle? Uh, that's, all, that's all that I know. I mean, there may be other information out there. I know a little bit about um, uh, the girlfriend, fiancé. Somehow she's connected to the victim through other people. But I haven't really heard much about uh, the family of Aaron Hernandez myself. Well, one last question. I just want to know, how did you get involved, or how did you begin to get in internet as an international sports attorney? I'm curious. Well, you know, I was working as an international lawyer for many years and uh, always liked sports, played sports as a, as a young person. And um, I've had a couple of interns over the years from different countries, and we've kicked around the idea of working with uh, soccer players in South America and bringing them into Europe, American basketball players, bringing them over to Europe and South America. And uh, over a period of time, it just sort of all came together. And uh, so... As I say, after 25 years really working around the world uh, as an attorney, I saw that being a sports agent is not really that much different. It involves negotiating, drafting contracts. Um, but uh, it, it really is a, a way to help young people and uh, to, to promote, uh, I think, uh, really world peace in a way because uh, sports uh, is, a, is a way to, uh, to bring people together. Yeah, I would agree with you. So now you are, and I think I mentioned this earlier, but uh, founder of American International Sports Management. I don't know if I did, but I'll mention it. Yes, I think that Thank is, a, yeah, right. it is a way to bring people to get, to bring young people together. I think you're absolutely right. And, uh, um, and, and the combination is very interesting. So what you said, you played sports. What sports did you play? Well, I didn't play on organized teams. Uh, I'm not really, uh, we don't really have the sporting physique, but as yeah. a as a youth, I played all sports: baseball, football, basketball, uh, and indeed, even into my forties, I played uh, until my son reached age fourteen. I was even able to be competitive with him on the basketball court. But those days are, are now past me, so I just do it for fun. I like to cycle, I like to swim, so I like to stay active still. Yeah, I think there are sports that you can do as one ages, um, maybe not play basketball or football with your 14-year-old son, but as you say, right. swim, yeah, and keeps you in shape. And I'm assuming that you are in shape. I try to be. <laughs> I can't see you, so it's okay. You can say whatever uh -huh. you want. But yeah. So uh, we have a couple more minutes. Have we covered, you know, uh, sort of the, ba I want to, you know, the Hernandez case or something uh -huh. we should give us some, you know, what you'll be looking out for, or have we, uh, you know, in terms of as the case goes on, um, well, if you want, we can talk a little bit about some of the um, um, extra-legal consequences. We talked briefly about uh, the photo in the Hall of Fame. Uh, it's been taken down. I, I think that's really a, a bit of an overreaction, just like uh, the stories that say, oh, my goodness, 30 football players have been arrested since the Super Bowl 
to me again is a kind of an overreaction. Um, I don't I don't think that um, you know I guess if you look at the picture I don't know if you've seen the Hall of Fame picture as I say it's not a portrait of Aaron Hernandez in the Hall of Fame he hasn't been inducted he's only been playing for two or three years but uh, he has a, a gleeful look on his face he looks happy obviously a, a good play just occurred he's high stepping uh, down the field and uh, I guess that that was just offensive to some people that. Uh, how can you have a picture of Aaron Hernandez with a smile on his face when he's being accused of murder? And I just, I just feel like that's an overreaction. He's got uh, a presumption of innocence. Let that process take place. If he gets convicted, sure, you can take the picture down then. But uh, the Hall of Fame has, has, has made its choice, and they've taken the picture down now. Okay. Well, we have to. I'm getting the high sign. We have to say goodbye. It really. Uh, I thank you for being on, the, being on the show this morning, David Willig, and I'll international sports agent and attorney, uh, and uh, has. Uh, we've been talking about Aaron Hernandez. Thanks so much for being with us this morning. Thank you, Catherine. Thanks for having me on the show. It's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure. Uh, we're going to take a short break right now. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Don't go away. We'll, we will be back with author and radio personality Martha Zoller, and we're going to be talking up, cooking up controversy with Paula Dean. We'll, don't go away. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. Want to know what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network host? How about what's new with our network? Make sure you check out the iRadio blog, a look at what's hot at Voice America and beyond. Visit www.iradioblog.com today. Get the inside scoop on every channel on our network, including breaking news, featured guests, blog posts from our hosts, and much more. Make sure you sign up for our newsletter for even more inside action. Visit iradioblog.com today and stay connected. Now there's a new destination for video content, voiceamerica.tv, just like our radio channels and so much more. Voice America Variety, Health and Wellness, Business, Sports, Green Talk, Power Up Motorsports, and 7th Wave Network now have their own video channel components. Plus, check out exclusive programming, including movies, music, educational courses, science and history, current events, and short features. High-definition, premier-quality programs available 24-7, voiceamerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and 
You're listening to The Catherine Zock Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Well, joining me this morning is Martha Zoller. Martha is, she and I are going to be talking about cooking up controversy with Paula Dean. Uh, Martha Zoller um, is a radio talk show host. She's an author. Uh, She's also created a new political website called Z Politics. And you've probably seen her on CNN and MSNBC, ABC World News. Uh, Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Martha. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Okay. Well, we're going to be talking about, everybody's talking not about Martha Dean. Uh, that seems to be one of the topics of the day. And you are a radio talk show host uh, uh, and actually a conservative one, if I can say so. I'm so. I would consider myself a liberal one. So let's have a good conversation about Paula Dean. Well, you know, it's interesting. First, the thing about Paula Dean is everybody assumes because she was from Georgia and Georgia is such a red state that she was a conservative. But she's a liberal Democrat who's given money to President Obama. She she confides and has gotten advice from from Jimmy Carter. And and a lot of the people that really went after her, I'm not quite so sure if they would have gone after her so hard if they had known that she was a supporter um, of the president, just because it, it seems like there is a different standard to be held. Also, there's a different standard for Southerners. You know, it's I walk down the street in New York, and I hear the N-word flying around as I walk down the street today in 2013 by people all the time in normal conversation, in normal language. That's a word I never used. I mean, I grew up in the South. I was never, I was raised in the South. My parents were the kind of people that taught us not to um, not to judge people by the color of their skin, and that's the kind of home that I grew up in, even at 53 years old, where I went through desegregation and that kind of thing in school. And and what happened to Paula Dean uh, is that, you know, she was evidently a difficult woman to work for. She said and did some things in her work life that she shouldn't have done. She evidently did a deposition and told the truth about that. I mean, she could have said she didn't remember, but she told the truth. A deposition was leaked to the press. It was supposed to be a sealed deposition. It was leaked to the press, and as a result of that, she lost a lot of endorsements, kept some, lost some endorsements. Her restaurants and her books are doing great. Uh, but it's, it's an interesting uh, thing because you've got in New York City right now two men who, who cheated on their wives leading in the polls uh, for mayor and comptroller of, of New York City, but yet Paula Dean, uh, not only do they want her to fall, but they want her to never be able to work again uh, because of some things she said years ago. So you think it's a, it has to do with this kind of political correctness, and we have a different set of standards for people in the south, in the, south of the Mason-Dixon line than we do north. It's okay for people in New York City to say or do the kinds of things that Paula, that she did, but um, it's not okay in the south, and, and so she's become a... a yeah, I think there is a little bit of a double standard. You know, my, my friend Zell Miller, the writer and senator and governor, said, uh, and I quote, hillbillies are the last group of people it's okay to make fun of and nobody says anything about it. And and I'm proud to be a southerner because I'm proud of what we've done in civil rights in the last 50 years. If you look at the south, um, it is where, you know, Atlanta is the wealthiest city for black people in the world. Uh, there are more black millionaires in the city of Atlanta than there are in any city in the world. It is We have elected uh, statewide officials from the South that are black. We have, we have borne our wounds of the civil rights era, and we have put it all in the front window for everybody to see. And, and by and large, yes, race is a topic, and we've seen that in, the, in recent news, race is a topic. 
but it's something that in, in large part has been dealt with and that if you are a racist person in the South, you are not in the inner circle of, of any organization, and that has changed a lot over the last 50 years. Um, so Paula Dean, you know, is, is, is doing okay as far as that goes. Uh, she shouldn't have said what she said. Uh, she did tell the truth about it. This is why big corporations settle lawsuits, you know, because uh, on paper things sometimes don't look too good. I'm not condoning what she did. I'm just wondering if the standard is the same for everyone as far as the things that they say and do. Yeah, well, maybe it isn't, but why Paula Dean? Why do you think, I mean, why did she become the victim? Yeah, and I think that it was because she was a Southern woman, and, and I still think that a lot of people don't really get the South, and it's an easy target to say, oh, the South is just racist, so this is just the South. I mean, there were all kinds of articles after this. No, I look at this as Paula Dean's bad behavior that has no reflection on where she lives anymore than, you know, Anthony Weiner or Elliot Spitzer's uh, behavior has any reflection on where they live. We ought to stand on the behavior that we have based on our own, our own selves and our own record, not necessarily where we come or what group we belong to. Okay, and I would agree with that, So, I, I, but I want to talk specifically about Paula Dean. Okay. Yeah. Do you think, I mean, do you think she's a racist? Do you think, I mean, we're going back to comments that she made, what, 30 years ago. Um, and so why, I, I keep getting back to her specifically. Um, yeah, I don't think she's a, I don't think she's a racist. I think she said some things that she shouldn't have said. Uh, I think that she has been a person that, you know, has come through a lot of strife in her life and has made something of herself. And, you know, anytime people get some kind of success, I think they become somewhat of a target. It just depends on, you know, what your resilience is to, to come along with it. No, Paula Dean's not a racist. And you know what? Paula Dean is going to live to fight another day. Her books are going to do well. There's a cruise that's been booked that they can't get enough, you know, that is, that is sold out. There are, um, you know, she's been supposedly approached about being on Dancing with the Stars and, and, and that kind of thing. You know, America loves a comeback. You know, as much as we like to tear people down, we like to build them up, we like to tear them down, and then we love to see a comeback, right? We love to see. So, so I think she'll have, you know, if she chooses to, she's 66 years old, she may not want to. She may want to, you know, take the money and run, if you will, and enjoy the rest of her life. Um, but uh, I think she'll be fine in the long run. Yeah, I think that's true. America does love a come back and you know we well, I think we like to see our heroes fall but then we like to see them come back again uh, I, I agree with you and, and she's probably will do it in a different way it looks you know I um, but she's lost a lot of endorsements and you know the stuff that I've read her book sales really may not make up for the what up until this point I mean this is just what I read I, I don't actually know but you know 12 15 million dollars in endorsements she's just recently lost so. Yeah, she roughly had 20 endorsement deals in total. She lost 12 and eight stayed with her. So, you know, she's still going to make money. I mean, she's not going to have any trouble paying the mortgage or the food bills, right? So, so you know, I don't, I don't want anybody to think, oh, she's destitute. But, uh, yeah, about 12 companies, big ones like Walmart, um, uh, the, the casinos. Yeah. The casinos that had her food there. I mean, a big, big, um, big groups of people. And, and I would argue they, they, they acted probably a little bit too quickly. 
uh, and that to kind of really not know exactly what happened, and they just kind of knee-jerk reaction and said, okay, we're going to get rid of her. But, you know, it's a business decision. I mean, I'm in the radio business. You're in the radio business. You and I could say something today, and tomorrow we won't have a job. I mean, that's just kind of the nature of the beast when you're in the public eye. Yeah, I think that's true, and it is a business, and, and these companies, they haven't done it just with with uh, with, with with her, uh, with Paula Dean. I think they do it immediately. They did it with Tiger Woods. Uh, you yeah. know, I think, yeah, uh, they, I mean, I think that's pretty consistent because it's all about the money and all about the business, and they don't want to be associated with all this stuff. So, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, but this whole north-south thing, I'm really interested because I have to tell you, when I, you know, I'm from New York, um, and when I go to, you know, and I'm in, in in the south, I visit a lot, whether it's business or pleasure, and I do have that sense that I am a stranger in a strange land, being a New Yorker. Well, first of all, let me say I love New York. My dad was from Jersey City, and, and he met my mom at Fort Jackson in South Carolina, and and she convinced him to stay south. But my dad's, you know, my dad was from New Jersey. My daughter wants to be a Broadway actress, and she's getting ready to move to New York. And I'm going to New York for fun uh, in a couple of weeks. I love New York. It's one of my favorite cities. And 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 so I feel, you know, I used to be one of those people. People said, don't you feel nervous in New York? No, I love walking down the street in New York. I find people to be friendly. Uh, but I think that's partially how you respond. You know, if you're a friendly, outgoing person, people are going to be that way with you. And and in the South, I think that yeah, sometimes we're a little warier of um, of of folks that c- don't come from around here. But we've had to deal with that because if you look at the growth in the South and the Southwest, it's all been people coming from the Northeast and the Midwest moving south. As my friend Andrew Young said, the former ambassador, you know, desegregation and air conditioning made the South rise again. <laughs> I think that that's, you know, I think that's part sure. of it when it became a. A lot more livable down here uh, in in all ways through desegregation and through a great air conditioning system. It made it, you know, 10 months of the year, the weather here is great. You know, it's a couple of months in the summer that it's difficult. But we do have this red state, blue state thing. I mean, it, it which is reflected in our, com- you know, in Congress, in the Senate. Um, so, and it's pretty powerful, I think, don't, I mean, in terms of the, uh, the political scene, um, and it's, it's pretty consistent in terms of, you know, red state, blue state um, kind of politics. Um, you know, as, and- a, as a product, as a product of the whole cable news thing, I mean, I'm, I'm fully aware that if there was not 24-hour news, a gal out of Georgia would not have gotten the kind of exposure on television that I've gotten uh, because they needed more voices, right? They they had a lot of time to fill. It's a beast that has to be fed, so they need a lot of voices. So I'm, but the flip side of the 24/7 news cycle is it a, it's a beast that has to be fed, and so they so they benefit if there's a crisis. And I think the media, whether it's with the Trayvon Martin case or the Paula Dean case or whatever it is, the media has a vested interest in things being unsettled because it makes for a better story than just saying everything's good. Ted Turner years ago tried this show called Good News. It was a big flop. (laughs) It was a big (laughs) flop because people don't want to hear good news. All they want to hear is controversy. But I think that in this world, and you tell me what you think about it. You're a sociologist. Say a terrible story happens, Paula Dean, whatever it is. And and if they do that two- or three-minute cut every half hour telling the story, it's almost as if you think it's happening all the time, not just, hey, this happened a few weeks ago, and, and here's an update on the story. So you get this feeling when bad things happen because they are reported on hour after hour after hour after hour um, that it's, you get this feeling the world's falling in on you because 
of the way we report it. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Yes, it's 24-7. It's constant. We're bombarded with the same thing every hour on the hour, and that's true. And then, uh, yes, so then we begin to believe that it is happening all the time. Yeah, and uh, yes, I do. I I, I think that's true. I do agree with you, and I uh, that doesn't make for good radio for me to agree with you, but I do. I know, and and I'm a, I am a I am a right wing, proud to be a part of the right wing conspiracy kind of person. But but I always find when I get on shows like yours that we find some common ground, which I think is what we've got to work on a lot more. I agree with you. And I was reading your bio. It was really uh, because I'm left wing, and you, but one of the things that you said your uh, your father and you mentioned him earlier uh, was in the World War II and fought for this country, and and that you know that influenced the way he raised you. Uh, you know yeah. that yes, to be proud to be an American and to do good and to. Um, uh, and and I it was funny as I was reading it. I'm thinking, you know, my father also was in World War II. He was a captain on a sub chaser in the North Africa, and oh wow, my dad was in North Africa too. Wow. Yeah. Okay, so you know, fighting in the same uh, arena, and he came back, and he, you know, I came from a came from a very privileged background, and I he always said, you know, because of that, you really need to to do good, you need to give back, you need to, and so I've always come from that perspective, but it sort of, it led me to doing, to be on the left and to support those kinds of, you know, whatever I support, but uh, it was just, it was interesting to me, coming from different, very, coming the same place, but kind of taking it in different paths. In the last year and a half, I've had the opportunity to interview former Senator Bob Dole and former Senator George McGovern, who's now passed away. But I talked to him before before he had his fall that led to his death. And and I talked to them about this very issue because and they say, and I'm sure they weren't implying that women shouldn't be in government at all, but they say that when they served in the Senate, because most all of them had had that experience of being in the military, it didn't matter whether they were left or right. They had that beginning point of understanding because they had that common experience of being in the war together, and then they could negotiate from there. And I think we've lost that to some degree, you know, with the 500 channels where you can pick anything you want to watch and, and, and listening or watching to, to things anytime you want to. While that's wonderful and freeing, it, it takes away those common experiences that everybody had uh, that, that they could relate to. But do you I'm think getting it, too philosophical. Sorry about that. No, that's okay. <laughs> but I'm. But uh, you know. Um. But doesn't it bring the world together? I mean, maybe. It, okay. You know, in terms of now, we are kind of an international community, and I think that's the good thing about uh, what this. You know, we're all watching the same thing twenty four seven. You know, people in Africa or people in Europe. Uh, you know, are, are exposed to the same kind of of media. Uh, that we are. I, that's. A, I think that's a positive part of it because we we yes, can understand. Yeah, understand each other. Yeah, I mean, so there's always. I have this theory, and I write about it in Indivisible. That there's, you know, there are. Everything's got two sides to it. Every good quality's got a bad side to it. Every bad quality's got a good side to it. And and you know, the good side of of all of this kind of media that's easy to get is it makes the world a little smaller in some ways. The bad side is. It, it, it has us a little bit smaller, but in our own corners. <laughs> so, you know, but I, I think it's exciting. I think it's exciting, too. But, Martha, uh, talk to us about your, because this new website that you've launched, Z Politics. Yeah, it's, 
it's called zpolitics.com, and we focus mainly on Georgia politics, um, but we also talk about the big stories of the day, even if they're not in Georgia. Uh, we've, you know, we have passed our two competitors in just three months as far as unique visitors, and um, we're just we're just working really hard to do good writing uh, on both sides of the aisle, and and to really talk about the issues that are important. Well, how did you get that to that point in launching this blog? Well, I, you know, I after I ran for Congress, uh, a couple of people came up to me, and I lost. I lost in the runoff. A couple of people came up to me and said, you still have a lot to say, and I got back on the radio. Uh, my boss offered me a job, and they said, hey, you know, I think you, you know, we need, this is a void in the coverage of the news, and I think you can make an impact right away, and, and they were right. So I got some good advice, and I, and I went with it. <laughs> Yeah, how, how did you, you know, you ran for Congress, and, you know, that has to be a blow. I mean, that was, a, you know, a rejection. How'd you handle yeah. that? Because I mean, you, you're the kind of person, obviously, that's able to do that, and you just keep on going and moving forward. And But so, you know, just give us some insight. How how were you able you know, to do that? Yeah. I think it's again, goes back to my parents. My parents were very much, you have to look at everything in the positive way. And, um, you know, we were the kind of family that we had to come down the down the steps in the morning with a smile on our face, regardless of how we felt. Now, some of that's bad. You know, you don't want to totally be Susie Sunshine and then walk off the cliff. But in, in times of setbacks, being able to, you know, have a pity party for 48 hours, which I allowed myself that. I had a pity party and didn't get out of my bathrobe for 48 hours. And then after that, I said, okay, what are we going to do? I have this debt I have to retire, which I did. I have to let people know that I'm not going to be down. I amended fences with my opponent. I mended fences with people that worked against me. And, you know, it helps being in the journalism world because I need them to take my calls, right? Yeah. So, so you know, you I, I... How did you... You know, you say you mended, fen you know, mended fences with them. How did you do that? That's I called them up, asked them to have a cup of coffee, and we had a conversation. And, um, and you know, I told them what I was concerned about, and they told me what they were concerned about. And then we found a way to, you know, to agree to disagree on some things. But also, you know, that, hey, we're on the same side of, 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 for me, moving the conservative movement forward. That's what I want to do. So I don't think that Republicans ought to fight with each other. I don't think Democrats should fight with each other either. I think that the, the country is well served by having two strong parties, uh, and, and, but they need to learn how to, how to work together a little better. All right. So that was part of the process after you got out of your bathrobe, which I can understand <laughs> after 24 <laughs> hours or 48 or whatever it took. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, you got yourself out of bed and met your opponents. That's great. Okay, so then, um, I mean, you seem to me the kind of person, I mean, once you get going, you're sort of unstoppable. Um, and I'm saying this in a really positive way. I mean, you kind of have uh, just this... Well, you have a, the personality, which obviously comes across on the radio, but kind of this fortitude and this kind of like bad things happen, but you just get up and you keep on going. What about your family? How do they, do they support you? Uh, you know, are they part of all of this or what? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I couldn't do it um, without my husband's support. My children are grown. They're, you know, 21 to 30. Uh, and so they were very supportive too. Um, and, you know, you can't do the kind of things I do. Now, I stayed home until my youngest was in school and uh, sort, of re sort of built this career um, in beginning in my late 30s. I'm 50, I will be 54 next month. Uh, so, you know, I, I took about 10 years off and uh, went from, you know, went from there on it. So I, I just think it's about communication 
and it's about, um, you know, having great folks. Now, we had a marriage. My husband and I have a very traditional marriage. You know, he makes the living. I make the living easy. And that was kind of how we made things work. But when I decided to go back to work, you know, some things had to change a little bit. But um, but I've tried to, to keep a, hold on to a few things, and this may sound silly. I still make his lunch every morning. I still make sure that, you know, that he, he, he's taken care of so that it's not like, oh, my gosh, my wife's gone all the time. So, so I put the marriage first, which is, which is really the important thing to do. And that's what my Christian faith tells me to do to put our marriage first. And then, and then you go from, you go from there on it. And he's, he is so great. He always, and, and his feelings are more hurt. He, I'm over it. He's not. Okay. Because he has to sit there. It's always harder on the spouses. They have to sit there and listen to, um, the bad things that are said about their spouse. And so he's had a harder time with it than I have. Uh, but, you know, we just, we just do it together. And he told me the other day, you know, you can, you always make the right decision. Well, I don't always make the right decision, but he believes in me. And I think that's important in a relationship. You believe in each other and you, you hold each other up when things go bad and you're there when things are good. Well, and trust and respect, I think are the two other words you have to interject there. Now, I have, and this is the other side of it, uh, making lunch for him. I'm like sitting here, oh, well, I, yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to comment on that, but I have. No, it's a packed lunch. It's a packed lunch because he works all day, and so he doesn't have time to stop and get lunch. So when I, before I go out in the morning, I pack him a lunch. So it's, it's, it's a nice little thing to do. Well, we I have a relationship with my partner, and he's of 25 years. He and I have been together. I never make him lunch. He's the one who does the cooking <laughs> in the relationship and uh, and is a great gourmet cook, by the way. But we have those things that are important, as you just described, you know, trust right. and respect and caring and all of that. So uh, it's very interesting, you know, kind of um, coming from very different places. But... Uh, how long have you been married? Uh, 23 years, almost 24. So when I married him, he had three little boys, and I became the instant mother of three, and then we had a daughter, and um, we've raised our children, you know, raised all four of the children all the way through, and, you know, it's it's been great. It's been a wonderful experience, um, and it's not to say there aren't bad days. Of course there are. I mean, you know, marriage is difficult, um, and, and but it's worthwhile. Yeah, relationships are a challenge, I think. They're always a challenge, no matter whether it is your partner of 25 years or your husband of 25 years or, uh, to me, whether you're same-sex or you're heterosexual or whatever it is, relationships are difficult, They need, and and uh, I, I think it, it just applies to all um, intimate, committed relationships. But it's the most important thing, and that really, at the end of the day, nobody ever wishes they worked more. Nobody ever wishes that they, you know, that they were busier. I think at the end of the day, people wish that they spent more time with the people they love, you know. And and I think that that's the challenge that that I always try to keep at the core of what I do is uh, just realize what's the most important thing. And my husband and my children and my relationships are the most important thing. And uh, everything else, you know, there are times obviously when my work, obviously when I was on the campaign trail, there were times when I, that was all that I was doing was all consuming. But, um, at the back of my mind, you always keep those things first. I agree. And we, we have about 15 seconds left. So, um, we have to say goodbye, Martha Zoller. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. much. It was, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. And, uh, We'll have to have you on the show again. Thanks. So, and good I luck love with it. politics.com. 
Yeah. Thank okay. you very much. You've been listening to the Catherine Zock Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Uh, we will um, see you next week. Have a good week and uh, see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff, and management.